few of the experiences I've had where you've had these moments and you're kind of like, okay, people are just a little different, right? So I spent some time in China and, you know, for a while it's cool, it's tourists, it's the thing you see. But the further off into China you go, in the more rural areas, you start to realize, wow, nobody really speaks English here. That's surprising in, in China. Nobody, nobody really does that. And you know what's really hard to find in China? A fork. Like, nobody wants to really hook you up with a fork the deeper into China you get and start checking things out. You're just not usually going to find forks. So you find, yes, believe it or not, it's a different culture. Things are differently done in that country. As you're there and you start to embrace it and start to have the experience in China, you say, hey, you know what? I'm going to embrace this. I'm going to figure out how to use these chopsticks with a little bit better proficiency than I do at home and I just kind of like fake a little bit when I get to take out Chinese food and go, ah, never mind, I'll just get a spoon go at it, right? So you learn there's experience there, there's something exciting to try, it's something different, it's part of the fun, right? Or similarly, if you've been over to, to Europe in those parts and you've seen them driving, believe it or not, on the wrong side of the road, right? That's scary. What are they doing? The first time you see it, not usually as a driver, you better figure it out before you get in the driver's seat and do it, but if, as a pedestrian, right? You kind of like walk out in England and your inclination is to look, is this car going to hit me? And you're seeing the back of the car, and you're going, okay, so they're coming this, oh, okay, let me look to my right before this car might hit me. So you have to learn and sort of train your mind, let alone if you're going to drive a car, ride a bike, do anything like that in a place where they're on the wrong side of the road. You have to come to grips with the differences in the destination you're at. So what we're going to look at this morning from the book of Hebrews is we're going to have the author walking us through two destinations, and he's contrasting them for us to tell us what it's like to go to a better destination. As he puts them out there, as he talks about the destination that we'll look at, he's bringing combined the idea that there are certain customs, a way that you act, a way that you live <clears throat> in light of your destination. And that's uh, going to be our focus as we walk through this final warning in the book of Hebrews. So what I'm going to do is go ahead and pray for us, and then we're going to dig into this passage then in Hebrews chapter 12. So if you'll, you'll pray with me. God, I thank you for the chance that we can meet this morning. God, I pray that your word would be uh, what we know it to be, that it would be alive and active in our hearts, that it would change minds this morning, that it would open us to truth. God, we know that these are your very words that we look at from your scriptures. God, I pray that anything I say that pulls attention away from that may be forgotten. But God, we would sit under your word. We would know that you are here and present with us and that you are speaking to us in this time together. And so wherever we've been, wherever we're coming from, God, you've brought us here to hear from you. And we pray that you might speak powerfully in our minds and hearts today. Amen. So the author of Hebrews describes the two destinations. And uh, I think if we hit the next slide, we'll see one after that one. Sorry. That's where we're at, is Mount Sinai and Mount Zion. These are our two destinations that we're going to be uh, looking into a little bit closer. And from this, we see that where we come determines how we should act. Where we've come determines how we should act. So we talk about the destinations first. I'm going to spend a little bit of time on that, talking through Sinai and Mount Zion. Let's make sure we get those two terms. They may not be on your, like, saved travel list of locations for next year. So I'll walk through what they are. And then we'll talk about what is this custom, or as I've called it, devotion a little bit. Like, what does it mean to be at one of these destinations and live in a certain way? So as we think about uh, this, you're in kind of chapter 12 of Hebrews, you grab your Bible app, open up a, a paper copy, either way, and you look at these verses. We're at the end of chapter 12. We worked our way all the way from chapter 1 in Hebrews, all the way to this point in the chapter, and we come to the final warning that the author of Hebrews is giving us. And in this, he starts off with a bit of a, a description of a mountain. 
which might come from left field for you. Kind of like, why are we talking about mountains? This is kind of a weird thing. So I want to describe for us uh, Mount Sinai to start with. If you can go to the next slide, here's our text then. As you look at verse 18, words are, For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness, gloom and tempest, and the sound of a trumpet, and a voice whose word made the hearers beg that no further message may be spoken to them. We can stop there for just a second. Now, when we say Mount Sinai, it may have a connection with you if you've grown up in the church, you've been a part of it, pretty, uh, pretty close to the Bible in any ways. But it's also a, a location that you may not be particularly familiar with. So I want to kind of talk about how Mount Sinai functions in the Old Testament Scriptures. So Mount Sinai is in the Older Covenant, a location where the law was given to the people of Israel. It symbolizes the special status of the nation as God's chosen people, the Jewish people, and the reception of their most treasured possession, the law of God. Now, if you're not real familiar with biblical history, here's the quick, uh, quick notes on that. Israel was in Egypt. They were in slavery and bondage at that time, that nation. And God delivered them or rescued them from the nation of Israel through what we think of as the Exodus, taking them out of the, the nation of Egypt and bringing them across the Sinai Peninsula. And while they were there, they met on a mountain, most likely in southern Sinai, and he gave to them the law. And so when we hear in the Bible, or we read in its pages, pages this idea of Mount Sinai, it's this very uh, intricate and very emotional connection often for the Jewish people to know this is where God showed you he loved you. God had just done this miraculous saving work of your people so that they could live, taking them out of Egypt. And then God said, no, you're going to be a people, and I'm going to tell you how to live, and I'm going to show you my care. I'm going to give you what no one else in the whole earth has ever received the law of God, to receive that heavy burden, but also the joy and the sweetness that comes from that information. So this is a retelling uh, specifically in Exodus 19 and 20 from the Hebrew Bible. And in this event, this big moment when Jesus, uh, excuse me, when God gives the law to the people of Israel at Sinai, it's accompanied by really this kind of, uh, we call it kind of a numinous encounter, right? One of the major interactions between God and Yahweh has accompaniment of all these amazing things. And it's what the text kind of talks about, and we read it and we kind of go, that doesn't sound real great, right? When you see it talk about things like darkness and gloom, a tempest, you kind of think, okay, that doesn't sound like the most fun experience. That's not a great place to find yourself. But it was really just a statement of how great God is and was in that moment, and that he appeared, and it was his full intensity of his presence that brought there on the mountain. And when that happened, we're actually told here in this, these few verses of Hebrews just what that was like. Uh, you know, it talks about not being able to touch the mountain. Or it says you can touch the mountain, but it gave a prohibition not to touch the mountain. So this was a tangible mountain. There's fire, there's darkness, gloom, and tempest. Uh, if you go to the next slide, I think it has the other two verses yep, that are on it there. And it goes through this description of how holy and special this mountain was, that if an animal even wandered onto this mountain, that it would have to be stoned. And it seems very distant from our world, right? I get that. When I say it out loud, you're like, this sounds crazy. What are they doing? This is what Mount Sinai was, this amazing moment of God coming to humanity with his word to implant his purposes on a people. But he did it in such a way with high reverence and high commands, but a heavy weight and it ended up being so terrifying. It was terrifying even to Moses. The Israelites were fearful at this experience that they were saying, God, if you could just stop talking to us, we can't even handle your continued word. Could you maybe just talk to this Moses guy and then have him tell us what's going on? Because it's too much to be aware of your presence. 
So all of that is, is how I would describe Mount Sinai. So if you think of that as a destination, don't think of it as like this overwhelming fear, but think of it as like, wow, that was more than I could handle. It was like the fire hose being turned on, and I, I just don't know. There's a lot of, of heaviness that comes with it. I need somebody else in this equation. The people were hoping Moses could do it. Moses did the best he could, but there was still this great fear that came from the presence of Mount Sinai. But then we have in the, the text here of, of uh, Hebrews, a contrast. He's saying, you haven't come to Mount Sinai. That's not where you've come. And everybody can say, good, I'm still not really sure that that's a good thing or a bad thing. All the fire, the gloom, the tempest, sounds pretty bad. He starts to then open up to describe for us what Mount Zion is like, which is where we've come. So if we go to the next slide, we have this uh, start for us in verse 22. So listen to the description of Mount Zion uh, as we try to unpack this. It says, see that you do not, or I'm sorry, verse uh, 22, or 21, 22, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels and festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are rolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So I keep putting the text kind of in front of you and reading that to you, but I kind of want to give you a little bit more background to Mount Zion. It's not something we talk about regularly to get a feel for what is meant when you read in the pages of Scripture what Mount Zion is. Hopefully you can see from just the words of Hebrews, it sounds like a little bit of a better place. It's a better destination. There's a little change in tone of how it's thought about. But here's how Mount Zion has functioned. It's, it's in the old, old Testament Scriptures. It's referred to as kind of the city of the living God, it's the heavenly Jerusalem in many ways. And there's a lot of biblical background to try to summarize that's thought of in this idea of this destination Mount Zion. So if you want to picture this as a travel agent description, you can, you can think of it that. This is Mount Zion, the destination that the author of Hebrews is saying we should be coming to. It's a, it's a place where the ancient Jews had a real sense of the place of God. So after the law was given on Sinai, the nation of Israel moved into the actual place where we think of today as modern Israel in the Levant area of the Middle East. And as they came there, they recognized that there was a, a place of military safety, a place of great religious significance, and that was this Mount Zion area, which is in the city of Jerusalem. And that location is where we think of most specifically of where the Temple Mount is today in Jerusalem. And that location was associated with uh, safety. It was a place associated with worship. And over time, that became the location of the temple and became God's holy mountain or his hill. A place of peace and protection. It also stood in direct defiance to the people who lived in Israel at that time, the Canaanites. You may have heard of them in the Old Testament scriptures as the bad guys. And they were there. They were the ones that were going to be removed from the place where they were so that God's people could receive their promised land. These people, the Canaanites, they had a holy mountain too, and it was called Mount Zephon, and it was the highest mountain in Syria. And when you compare that or contrast that with where Mount Zion was in Jerusalem, it wasn't especially an impressive hill. It wasn't the tallest anything, really. It's a hill. I mean, that's what it is, but it's not anywhere in difference. But the idea was that Israel's God stood on this hill. This was his home. This was his location. And it could stand at the face of all the other idolaters, all the other people in the land, and would be their place of safety. So it became this physical representation it was about God being the king of the city. They had, there was a temple located, the ruling dynasty of David, the walled city itself. All of this was found in this temple, this, this temple location at Mount Zion. 
It symbolized God's presence as there was the Ark of the Covenant there. Additionally, there's the spring of Gihon that brought back imagery from Eden. And so this great place, Mount Zion, was thought of as this great city of Israel. And there was safety and hope and everything found in that location and that destination. Over time, though, Israel fell. They lost their location. They lost their land. So the idea of Mount Zion began to be kind of abstracted and moved a little bit more from the physical location of Jerusalem and thought more of a heavenly location because it really is anywhere that God is. The true God of Israel, his location, that's what Mount Zion is. So when we look at the Psalms, I think uh, next slide might have one of the Psalms. This is kind of the description you run into. So in Psalm 48, we read, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, his holy mountain, Beautiful in elevation is the joy of all the earth. Mount Zion, in the far north, the city of the great king. Within her citadels, God has made himself known as a fortress. And just the next one, to get another feel for this, sometimes referring to it as just a holy mountain, not actually saying the words Mount Zion. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy mountain, for the Lord our God is holy. So when you read your Bibles, you see this come up, you're probably going to say, there's a lot about this mountain, what's the big deal? It's pointing to, this is where God chose to be in the Hebrew Bible times or in the Older Testament. He was here at this location of Mount Zion. So the author of Hebrews calls on that imagery again because it became such a fascinating point to the Hebrew people. Even as they lost their physical location, they put their hope in this place of where God would be present with them again. And so their poets and their prophets wrote about it. In the time between the Old Testament and the New Testament, there began this permeation of this idea of a heavenly Jerusalem In the New Testament times, Paul writes in Galatians 4.26, the Jerusalem above that he makes his stake in. And so this is a very important theme that we don't think a lot about, but meant a lot to the nation of Israel. And so when the author of Hebrews starts his place, he paints us a picture and says, okay, you haven't gone to that place of Mount Sinai. You're coming to Mount Zion. And then listen to how he describes it in the text there in front of you. He describes it a place where there's innumerable angels. There's some kind of assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. And God is there. God is this great judge of all people, and he is present at this location. So you would imagine that would follow with all the fear, all the dread that would come with Mount Sinai. But we read those next words that are really exciting. And he says, Jesus the mediator is there. So there's not the fear. There's not the weight of Mount Sinai. Instead, we've come to this place of Mount Zion, where actually we have Jesus standing between us and God, and he is presenting us before him. It talks about his blood, and we won't go into great detail, but saying that he presents a word to us. His blood speaks on our behalf to say that we're accepted to God the Father. It's an exciting place that we get to be a part of. So the emotion that comes out of this idea of Mount Zion, we read uh, Mount Sinai, and it sounds like fear, dread. That's the emotions that it pulls up. When you read Mount Zion, you can be thinking about festive joy, excitement, access. That's the destination we're coming to. So the author of Hebrews starts with this bit of explanation, a little theological truth, biblical theology that he's working through, which might be heavy. Think through that, hopefully explaining a little bit more of your Bible to make sense of. But then this is a, this is a sermon the author of Hebrews is doing. So he turns now. He takes that truth, and I don't have to do a lot of work here. I'm just going to tell you what he said. He turns that information into some application. He says, okay, I told you about some mountains. It probably sounded almost as strange in the time of the first century when this was written as it does to you today hearing me talk about mountains for a little while, but stick with me. He turns to this application. He's saying, here's what you need to know about these mountains. If you were on this destination of Mount Zion, everything changes. The customs there are different. 
the customs of people who are going to Mount Zion, we could summarize in one thing. They're devoted. Those that are going to Mount Zion are devoted. That's what the custom of life is that they have. And so that's what we're going to focus in here for the rest of our time to say, what does that look like? So look with me in the pages here of of Hebrews chapter 12. We'll have it up on the screen. Look at verse 25 to start with. It says, See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. So let's start there. The first custom of these people who are on their way to Mount Zion, which is supposed to be us. That's what we're supposed to be aiming for. It's good news if we head to that destination. He says, see that you don't refuse him who is speaking. There are people who do not refuse the voice that's being spoken. So can you feel the imperative here? Let us not refuse the one who is speaking. So this means you don't hold up your hands, say, I'm not going to listen anymore to that. You're not covering your ears. The idea is that you're listening. You're receiving that word. You know, there's probably no greater kind of affront or offense that you can have than to have someone not listen to you, right? It's probably the thing that frustrates me the most at home when I feel like somebody's not listening to me, right? You're like, I'm telling you, didn't you hear me? I'm trying to explain this. You're not listening to me, right? How rude is that when you're talking to someone in some setting, right? And they didn't hear a word you just said. They just got their next words out at you. You go, come on, do I have to be here for this? This is so rude. Like, I can't stand a bad listener. I'm sure there's great reasons, okay? Whatever happens. But it's really offensive. Now, then dial that up to think that there's this one who's speaking and we're having to be told to ensure that we don't refuse his words. Listen to who is the one speaking. It's God. God is the one speaking to us in this point, and he is the one that asking us. So the people who are coming to Mount, uh, Mount Zion are people who do not refuse the words of God. So this has been an important theme throughout the book of Hebrews. So in Hebrews chapter 1, you remember the very long time ago we preached that first sermon, Hebrews 1, and you may remember these words, long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our forefathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. So this idea is that God is speaking. He spoke to us through Jesus. That was the first representation. But then Hebrews went on to talk about in chapter 3, hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. Here's a warning, pay attention. And there was a strong note in Hebrews 4.12 you may be familiar with. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and of discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So the book of Hebrews has been a lot about the voice of God about hearing it, about reading it, about seeing it in Jesus lived out in front of us and as depicted to us in the Scriptures. All of this is so that the reality of Hebrews is that God has spoken and we know what He said. That's very crucial to how we live our lives. And now at this point, in His final warning of His very long 13-chapter sermon is He says, you should not refuse the one who is speaking. He continues the comparison by talking about uh, the the Mount Sinai event, arguing from a degree of severity. So if God's wrath left no one escape when the warning came from Moses on earth, dial it up, how much more will you not escape that judgment when you refuse the warning from God who is in heaven? You You get the argument he's making? So he's saying that a human person stood in front of you and gave you a warning, and you chose to reject it, and we know that ended in destruction. Now imagine when that message is coming from God and you choose not to listen to it. 
clearly there's greater threat, there's greater warning to us if we ignore his word. If we go to the next page, we get a little bit more detail, and I'm going to only briefly touch on these verses, but just to kind of give you some context as you read through it. Verses 26 and 27 uh, reads, if I can get off the glare, at that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. So he's a good preacher. This is one of those favorite preacher moves, right? You kind of like say a little phrase, and then you kind of explain the phrase, and you go back to the phrase. So it's just what he's doing here. Same kind of thing. So he's quoting from one of the more neglected pieces of Scripture from the book of the Twelve and the book of Haggai specifically in verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 6. And he's talking about this future shaking that would happen. So at the giving of the law at Mount Sinai in Exodus, there was a shaking that came accompanied with the giving of the law. And Haggai calls that up again as a prophet and says, look ahead to the future. That's going to happen again, and it's going to shake everything in the whole earth. It's going to totally change things. And his point is once again to call out, yes, this is a time that you have to take more seriously. If that happened once in the past, it's coming again in the future. Pay attention to the new destination of Mount Zion. So as Bostonians, we like to get to the chase, right? Cut right to it. What are you telling me, Tim? What's, why does this matter? Why are you taking our time to talk about Haggai and shaking and Mount Zion? I'm still working on. Work through this. Here's the point. God has spoken to us by his son and in his words of the Bible. And the reason we take the time to kind of center on this for our, our talk to this morning is it's at your own peril that you turn your hearts to other thoughts and ideas. It's at your own personal risk that you think you can sit on the sidelines and not listen and make a decision about what God is saying in your life. You can't wait till you're fully convinced of every possible question and answer. You can't wait till someday when you're older and you think, okay, now I'm ready to, to figure out where we stand with Jesus. The point is, is that God has spoken to you and you do not get to refuse his word. There's great warning from the example in Mount Sinai and now, as we are people who are known to be going to Mount Zion, we have this warning in front of us, telling all of us equally across the board, do not refuse the voice of God. He shook the earth once. Yes, once more there's coming a shaking, and you need an unshakable hope or kingdom. Here's the words that Paul would put before us to think about how this works. Okay, We can't answer everything. There's this, this huge threat. But Paul said it as simply as this. In Romans 10.9, telling us, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So my friends, I implore you in the name of Jesus, don't refuse him who is speaking. You've sat here, you've been here, you've heard the warnings. You've seen them presented to you. Je turn and believe to Jesus. He's your only hope in this life and the life to come. And that's the first custom or the mark of people who are going to this, the Mount Zion and being marked by that destination. They don't refuse God when he's speaking. But next off, another mark of the custom or the, the way of coming to the city is about gratefulness. So if you look at verse uh, 28, start as verse says, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. So the understanding is if you've heard these warnings, you've heard about these different destinations, and you know that you're pressing on to this hope in Jesus as a follower of Jesus to be a part of this Mount Zion that's being described to us, he says, you live in gratefulness. 
That's a mark of that life. That you know it's not anything of your own merit, your own doing. You could easily fall and be caught up in that same destruction. But instead, you know what Jesus has done for you, so you're marked by gratefulness. So it gives us this kind of hortatory imperative to tell us that we are grateful in acknowledging God, God's speaking and His promised uh, kingdom that He will give us that's unshakable. So as we look at a quote from Martin Luther on the next slide, this is just to give us a feel for just how essential, essential this is to the Christian faith and what we do. Martin Luther, the German reformer of the 16th century, said, Gratefulness is the virtue characteristic of real Christians. It is their worship of God at its best. They thank God and do it with all their heart. This is a virtue unattainable by any other human heart or by any other human being on earth. To thank with all your heart is an art, an art which the Holy Spirit teaches. And you need not worry that the man who can really say to God be thanks with all his heart will be proud, stubborn, rough, and tough, or will work against God with his gifts. You don't have that same worry. If there's someone who's fully aware of their gratefulness before God, all we have to do is bring to that person the idea that God has spoken and doesn't want you to be rough, tough, or working against God. And as you hear that message, we bow in humility and we're grateful for what God does. That's a mark of a Christian. That's where we stand and should be how we live. Then in a little bit more detail, the next slide gives us the second half of verse 28 and verse 29. Verse 28 reads for us, after saying, Therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. So the second imperative that we come to is about worship. And thinking about what that refers to, uh, we're, we're told that it's supposed to be acceptable worship. So that presupposes there's options of unacceptable worship and acceptable worship. So we've had Abel show up in this passage a little bit already, and clearly the story of Cain and Abel is a good description of that. And if you've missed uh, Pastor Matt McCann's sermon a few weeks back, that's a great unpacking of what acceptable and unacceptable offerings to God can look like, and definitely worth telling the, the rest of the story. But for the sake of time, talking about what worship is without doing a whole other sermon on worship, I'm going to unpack it really briefly and say what's included in biblical worship that, uh, that the author is referring to. And there's kind of three parts to that. When he talks about worship, he's thinking about our entire lives, our disciplines and practices, and our dispositions. So when we think about our entire lives, that means worship involves all the spheres that we run in. All of our work, our school, our families, recreation, all of those spheres require us to show worship in them. The practices of disciplines, this is hearing God's word, responding in prayer or in song, service, taking the ordinances, all of these things are the actions or the, the steps, the practices of worship. And then there's this last piece of disposition, thinking about fear and reverence, thinking about trust in God. That piece is also worship. So when the author of Hebrews talks about acceptable worship, he covers the gamut, probably most specifically emphasizing the kind of disciplines or practices that we do that we think of as Christian worship, the things that we do. But then he weds it with these couple words about our disposition, thinking about it as awe and reverence. And so these two words carry with it one idea about how we approach God and knowing who he is. That we, as we're full of, fully aware of who God is, we can't help but turn to worship him in fear and reverence. And then the last verse there in verse 29 says, really because our God is a consuming fire. 
So that's a strong image, strong words to end on. Um, And as you think about that idea, it's not meant to be a really safe phrase at all. It's the kind of wild, loose phrase that is sitting there in your Bible that's dangerous. We think about the idea that our God is a consuming fire. It sits heavy. It's not usually the thing that we start with in conversation. So I want to talk a little bit about what that points to. It does speak about the severity or the intensity of who God is. That God is indeed calling us and warning us toward faith and life so that we don't experience this this terrible destruction or judgment that God could bring on us. In no way uh, should we be doing that. So that's why this warning starts by calling us to heed the word of God, to not refuse his voice. But it goes beyond that. As we think about how it's described, it's telling us our God is a consuming fire. And he's writing this to Christians as well, people who have assumedly heeded this warning and not refused God's voice. So when we think about these, this passage, it's actually a quote from Deuteronomy chapter 4. And the full quote points to the fact that the nation of Israel was not supposed to turn to other idols, but was supposed to realize that their God was a consuming fire and also that he was a jealous God. The full description of this is that God not only cares whether we hear his voice so that we don't end in judgment, God says, okay, you're following me. I want you to understand who I am, what I'm like. I'm a consuming fire. And the emphasis is on that modifier to see the feel of consuming, what that means. So we follow God, and you're supposed to definitely feel the warning of fire, but also see what this imagery is like, that God is compared to consuming fire. What what do we know about fire? We know that it definitely consumes things, right? That's a tie-in there. So you think about what that means, right? You don't share things with fire. You don't let fire get a hold of an object and then go, eh, I'm going to take it back. You have some, I'll have some. It's all-encompassing. It takes control. It makes its mark on objects that come in contact with it. You don't go 50-50 with fire. It takes control. You don't say, you have your part, I'll have mine, we'll both be happy. I'll give you a little sliver of this piece of my clothing. No, fire is consuming. It takes over. That's the comparison that we see with what the worship of God is like. God is not satisfied merely with us saying, I'm going to give you a couple hours on Sunday and then the rest of the week's mine. God's not happy with us saying, hey, I'll throw a few bucks your way and then, hey, I'll do what I need to do with the rest of my money. God isn't sitting us saying, hey, I've served for a little while, now it's time for me to take a step back. I've got to take some time to myself. I'm not interested in serving Jesus' people or his church anymore. No, God is a consuming fire. He controls all of your life and he's going after all of your worship both in all of your practices and all of your doing, as well as your heart devotion and your love. Just as he didn't let Israel turn to idols, so God will not let us share his rightful place of worship with anything else in our lives. And he is on the mission to consume and take our love and worship from every other object. That's what God is telling us with this idea that he's a consuming fire. So there's tons to get out of this, but when you think about these destinations, we can say, okay, Mount Sinai, All right, sounds like a little doom and gloom. See some good things probably there. We have a better way in the hope of Mount Zion and the covenant that's promised to us there and that Jesus stands as our mediator before the Father. But then don't miss where he takes it home to us. He says, do not refuse the voice of God. And that's essential for all of us this morning. You've come here, you've heard the words, you've come over probably many weeks, different times. You've had different people presenting this to you. Hear the warning in these words as I tell you again. Don't refuse the voice of God. But then there's hope. There's enjoyment that comes with it. Know that God is coming toward us and he is offering us 
a great life in this Mount Zion. So how do we not respond with the right customs of the land? Gratefulness. How do we ever forget where we stand? Of course we're grateful for what God's done. And then we come to him with worship and fear and reverence and awe of who he is. But know that our God is a consuming fire. Not only judgment and concern, but he will take all of our heart and devotion and he's worthy of it. The only true worthy object of all of our worship and devotion. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this time, God, of uh, looking at your text. God, we know we need you. We know that we need you to pull us back from all the things that clamor for our love and our loyalty. God, we ask that you would be central in our eyes, God, that you would tear us away from faulty loves, things that we'll never fulfill. And we pray, God, that you would help us and all that are here to heed the warning, to hear your voice, and to turn and take hold of you and follow you in your name.